Dr. Samuel Johnson was one of the greatest English writers who ever lived. Um, he was around the 17th century. Uh, his contributions were as a poet, an essayist, a moralist, a literary critic, a biographer, an editor, and so on. He was a devout Anglican and a committed Tory, which means very little to our present generation, but he was those things. Uh, he was famous for quotes, uh, quite famous. And uh, I want to give you a quote of Dr. Samuel Johnson to open the study of the, uh, the book of Second Timothy. I do that in reference to the idea that Paul was facing a most certain death. Dr. Samuel said this. He said, depend on it, sir. When a man knows that he is to be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. If he knows that he's going to be hung on the fortnight, it it happens to concentrate his mind in a wonderful way, sharpens the the senses. Uh, I was reminded of that uh, recently in a book that I just finished that was an excellent book. It wasn't a book that I had chosen, but that a college class chose for me. And when I saw the title, I laughed to myself and thought, I said to Karen, I said, really, this is a book for a graduate level class. Uh, you'll laugh with me when I tell you that the title is Why Johnny Can't Preach. <laughs> Taken after the 60s book of Why Johnny Can't Read and Why Johnny Can't Write. But I learned that you can't judge a book by its cover, neither its title, because this is one of the best books on preaching that I have ever read. You'll hear it quoted soon in sermons. Um, This was written in 2004 by uh, T. David Gordon, who I emailed after I read it. I was so impressed. He's a professor up in uh, Pennsylvania, lives in Slippery Rock, Pennsylvania, which is a town that attracts me. And uh, he emailed me back. T, you enjoy an author, don't don't hesitate to communicate. You'd be amazed at how you can communicate with authors. And so he emailed me two hours later. He emailed me back, and we had a nice exchange. Very humble man. And, uh, but when he wrote this in 2004, uh, he had been given the diagnosis that he had stage 3 cancer. Given 25% chance of living, he believed in 2004 he was living his last year on this planet Earth. So when he wrote it, his mind was wonderfully focused. And he wrote uh, straight to the point. He didn't mix words, shot straight about the problem with present-day preaching and why there's a problem. The thesis is fascinating. It's a great read. But uh, in fact, when he was cured of cancer, he looked back and he thought, well, maybe I'll change some of the straightforward language that I gave because... But he thought, no, I'll leave it alone because that's how you write when you're fixing to die and there's a problem and you, want to, you don't beat around the bush about things. You just say it. When we come on a study of Second Timothy, you need to know that he, listen, he was listening to the... the blade of the axe sharpen outside of his cell. He was days, weeks, he was close to having his head cut off by the Roman government. This is the second time he had been in prison. The first time he'd written 1 Timothy, got out, wrote some epistles, but he had been thrown back into a Roman cell for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and stirring up what they called a turmoil. And so he was going to have his head cut off. And he looked out over his ministry, and it wasn't, a, it wasn't an exciting prospect. 
many of the churches that he established had turned away from him. Uh, Close friends had abandoned him in this hour. Uh, It looked like his ministry had been an utter failure. But I remind you, always allow God to judge the value of any ministry in the end. Those who we think are spectacular may be wood, hay, and stubble. And those who we thumb the nose at and think, how insignificant, may be gold, silver, and precious metal. Let's let the Lord decide. Let me read you a little bit of introductory by those who put together this Bible. and just is very brief. It says this. Timothy, um, let me get to 2 Timothy. It says, despite all that Paul was facing, death, the end of his ministry, the abandonment of by most of his friends for fear of persecution, he faithfully, in spite of that, directed his spiritual son Timothy to have hope in Christ. That's, those are good words as we open up the introduction to 2 Timothy. To give you an overview of Timothy and why it was written, it was written in a spiritual context of difficult times. Uh, Go with me in the book of 2 Timothy to chapter 3. Let me just give you a couple highlights within the book to let you know the context of why he was writing. Now, the main thing was to encourage his son in the faith, Timothy, to remain faithful and draw his life from Christ himself. But in chapter 3, notice... He gives context to the world that they were living in. And more than just the world they were living in, it's the world we are living in on steroids. Okay? Verse 1 of chapter 3, but understand this, that in the last days, when the Bible refers to the last day, it's talking last days, it's talking about the day of Pentecost until Jesus comes back. These are the last days. We think, well, the last days are now. They've been the last days for 2,000 years. Because the world's been around for thousands of years. This last day terminology is from Pentecost until the return of Christ. So, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Men, this, this reads like an evening newscast. Men will be lovers of self. Lovers of money. Why do people get shot in the street? They love themselves. They love their money. They love getting things. They're building their own kingdom. People are getting in their ways, and so they kill people. Lovers of self, lovers of money, they're proud, they're arrogant, they're abusive, they're disobedient to their parents. Notice how that is lumped in with this other ugly crowd. It's the very essence of sin itself to be disobedient to parents because they are the authority. And if you can't be disobedient, and I know I'm speaking just to a few youth in our midst tonight, But if you can't be obedient to your parents, you'll never be obedient to every other realm of authority all through life. You know, you heard of the the son who was tired of his parents' thumb of authority, so so he left and joined the Marines. Anyway, just let that thing play out in your mind. I was thankful for those who got in my face as a young man. I was thankful most for my football coach who wouldn't let me get away with anything, screamed in my face and spit in my face because when I went to boot camp in the Navy, it was no big deal. I, I knew that kind of treatment. I got it. Told me two, two things that are very applicable to any person. Keep your mouth shut and do what you're told. And that's what he told me. And it's good advice. 
I haven't always done that, but it was good advice, and I was benefited when I did do it. Notice, disobedient to parents, ungrateful for the few youth among us. Forgive me for targeting you tonight, but I just had to. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous. Can you believe the TV shows? That, I mean, I don't watch any of that stuff, but you kind of go through... And there's whole shows devoted by the nasty stuff people are saying and doing to each other. There's only one reason why those shows are popular. People love that stuff. It's that carnal, sinful nature. It's unbelievable, the the garbage that's on TV of these, I mean, Jerry Springer-type stuff. People waste their time with that. Anyway, so this is the situation. Chapter 4, verse 1. This is the spiritual realm. Notice he charges Timothy in the presence of God and Christ Jesus to judge the living, who will judge the living and dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. He encourages, encourages him to preach the word. Well, why does he tell him to preach the word? Well, n- notice uh, verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine. They won't listen to the preacher when he preaches against sin and judgment and righteousness and redemption And the blood of Jesus Christ and Christ himself, they don't want to hear it. They want a nice little talk of how to improve their lives. They don't want to hear that they're sinners and that they need a Savior. I'm reminded of uh, a famous preacher who escapes my mind's eye right now, but he is is an author, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I don't agree with all of his theology, but he was quite a preacher in the day back in England. And he had occasion to go to um, Cambridge and preach in their chapel. Now, these are intellectuals. And after preaching uh, in that chapel, a young student came up and, and said, Thank you, Dr. Jones. He said, For what? He said, For preaching to us like we were sinners. She said, You have no idea when preachers come in here, they try to impress us with their intellect. They try to impress us and most of them fail miserably, we can see through this charade. But you talk to us like we really are. Even though we're intelligent, we're sinners just like the rest, and we appreciate that. So anyway, just a little story. But there's, the, the, people don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. They, they want those positive thinking, warm and fuzzy, you are wonderful kind of talks. That's what they want. And, uh, or they want something to tell you. They're going to fill your bank account, heal you. You know, you, you see this stuff. They fill up auditoriums. They fill up banquet halls. I mean, just, it's, just, it's, you know, for the preaching of the word, there's always going to be a remnant who will sit and endure it. So these are the situations. Um, let's go back to chapter 1. We'll get a few verses into it. So there he is, head on the chopping block very soon, and he looks out and he sees Timothy. And he begins in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Notice, of Christ, by the will of God. According to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Now, there's an awful lot going on in this first verse. So let's go back and look at it because I want you to see... Paul is talking to Timothy about who he is and what he's done as a way of modeling to Timothy what he ought to think and what he ought to do. Notice Paul, he says, I am an apostle, I am a sent one, and I am sent of Jesus Christ. I am not sent from man or of man. 
I am sent from Christ Jesus, period. Now, a preacher, an apostle, in this case, an apostle, but a preacher should be one who is a preacher of Jesus Christ, not man, not a church. They're given to churches to preach and to lead, but no man is to be the yoke of a church. The church is not there in terms, he is not to be manipulated, he is not to be caused to preach or not to preach certain things because of pressure out there. Notice he says he's called by the will of God, not the will of man. A man will not have courage in the pulpit. A man will not preach the full counsel of God in all the scripture says if he's worried about what people will think or say. Neither will he be influenced by notes from the congregation. I haven't got a lot of them over 14 years, but I've gotten a few of them, notes. Notes are wonderful things. They're never signed. You never know really who you can guess, but you're not quite sure. But I've gotten the notes before. A preacher who believes he's preaching from the will of God, that God has called him this thing, is one who has great courage. He doesn't care about offending. If the gospel offends, it offends. Now, his goal is not to be offensive. Uh, Some preachers go out of their way to be offensive to people. That's not our job. But when the word offends, he doesn't hold back. He has courage. Notice the primary thing about Paul, the last part of that verse says, according to. Now, when the Bible says according to, it means in relation to. It means connected to something. It means the vital thing in in the equation. According to, notice, the promise of life. Not the promise of reward. The promise of of life being given to the preacher, to the leader, to you and I, that is all the time. How much reward did Noah have for preaching a hundred years to his generation? How many converts? His family alone. Many in the ministry do it for what reward they can get out of it. Acclamation, pat on the back, financial, whatever you want to say, And when things go south, those in ministry can get very bitter. Look at all I've done for him. Look at how he's treated me. But Paul here says it is according to the promise, not of reward, or not how God's going to do the ministry for you, but the promise that as you do ministry, you receive, excuse me, receive life. You receive life from him on a constant basis. Notice that life is in Christ Jesus. It's, it's so vital for, for we who do ministry and you who do ministry to understand the ministry is not the reward. The ministry is not the life. The ministry is the outflow of the life that we're counting on and trusting in and believing in the promise. I shared the gospel yesterday morning with a gentleman and he was in our service today. Uh, he came in looking for church, and Larry and I quickly realized that he didn't know Christ. And so we shared the gospel. And um, he was angry, a little bit bitter about the promises of God that hadn't been fulfilled. In talking with him a little further, it, he, he's on financial straits, difficult, doesn't work very often, and he's flat, busted, and broke. Now, he's claiming a promise that God never made. See? 
And we encouraged him that the great essential thing was the fact that you're dying and going to hell. And I said, God would rather keep you poor and in a place where you could receive Christ than give you a great job in a house down in Ortega and you die and go to hell. But the promise that God has made to all of us is life, and that life is found in Christ Jesus. See, the preacher will burn out. The minister will burn out. If his focus is ministry, if his focus is the calling, the calling is to Jesus Christ. And as he focuses on that life constantly, no matter what the church does in ebb and flow of ministry, good and bad, up and down, great, people getting saved, nobody seems to be coming, everybody seems to be coming, families kind of, eh, constant week in, week out. If his focus is on that, he'll, we'll either go home on a Sunday with our head in our chest or we'll go up puff like peacocks thinking this is good and probably it's good because we're here see but our focus must be the life that is in Christ Jesus on a constant thing Uh, take a look at verse 2 to Timothy he identifies Timothy as my beloved child King James says my beloved son there's a beautiful loving relationship between this older preacher and younger preacher and that's a that's a that's a powerful thing really is you'll listen to somebody who you believe loves you won't you you'll take some hard things from people who you know love you if you don't think they love you you won't take anything in fact you won't even be listening to them but if you know if they know you care if your kids know you care they'll listen to anything you say in the classroom they just will the essential thing is the love relationship. Notice verse 2. Uh, there's always a, a third word given to the introduction to, to, to Timothy that's not in the other epistles. The other epistles are all grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace. Go look it up. Philippians, Corinthians, Ephesians, anything you want to look at, Paul begins with grace and peace. But notice what the young preacher needs in the middle there. You see it? Verse 2. Grace, mercy, <laughs> and peace. From God the Father. He gives the trilogy, and in the middle he says, You need mercy. Uh, grace is getting what you don't deserve, mercy's not getting what you do deserve. It's a simple explanation of those two things. And so for Timothy and for any preacher, many times we make mistakes, we mess it up, and his prayer is, Don't give them what they do deserve. Be gracious to them. No. All right. Let's take a look at uh, the end of that. Notice peace from God. Now, I know you're looking at God the Father. And that's so standard to you and I. We've seen it all our lives in the Bible. We take it for granted. Do you know Christianity is the only world religion whereas the concept of the deity is the concept of a father? That was even kind of foreign to the Jewish mind before Jesus came along and talked about the Father. That's radical. Go look at the Muslims, the Buddhists, wherever you want to look. Their God is never described as a Father. That's a beautiful truth about the truth of Christianity, that God is like a Father to us. Now, I hope you had a good Father. I know some of you did. But isn't it beautiful that God Almighty, even though all-powerful, is our Father. He loves us. It's like a dad to us. Notice, 
and Christ Jesus. He doesn't say my Lord. He says our Lord. We share him. All right, a few more. Verse 3, it says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors. Now, when Paul says that, it's a dig at his old Jewish rivals. It's a dig at Judaism. It's a dig against all those who followed him around city by city and persecuted him. It's even a dig at Jewish believers. Notice he says, I thank God whom I serve just like Abraham, just like Moses, just like Noah, just like Enoch. All the guys you Jews say that you, they're, they're your people. I'm following him like they followed him. It's a dig. It, it, what, it, what it is, it's true, but he gives it to make sure they understand you're wrong when you look at me and you think I'm not serving the same God as those in the Jewish religion. It goes on and says, I not only served my, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience. It's amazing. With a clear conscience. As I re- notice, a clear conscience. He serves God and he knows God. He knows Jesus Christ. He knows the God of Abraham. He didn't know him when he was a Jew. Before he came to Christ. But now I know him by faith. Like faithful Abraham knew him by faith. It's a clear conscience. It's a powerful thing when a man knows the message and preaches the message and has a clear conscience as he's preaching it. Notice, as I remember you constantly, constantly in my prayers, night and day. I remember you all the time. Now, I'm not against organized times of prayer. If you do that, praise the Lord. Can continue to do that. Um, I have not made that my regiment in many years. I, I, I pray on a regular basis, but there's no time that I stop and say, this is my prayer time. This is just my practice. I pray in the morning. I pray in the afternoon. I pray in the evening, but no set time. I'm impressed by the Lord at times to pray for many of you. Sometimes for no reason at all, you pop into my head. And when the Lord pops somebody into your head, the great response is just to stop and say a prayer. When you tell someone you're praying for them, really pray for them. And to me, the best thing to do when you walk away from them is pray right then. Because you may forget it later on. That way later on, you see them. As many times as the Lord brings it up to you, pray. I don't think prayer was meant to be rigid. I don't think we were meant to make a law out of it. It can be, become very pharisaical. But it ought to be a constant practice of our lives that we talk to the Lord about one another. And we pray for one another. There's nothing wrong with praying for me on a Sunday morning as I prepare to come down here and go to work. Or pray for Caleb as he leads the music or Ed as he leads the youth. Or pray for one another as you have needs. When you drive home tonight, you ought to be praying for Miss Willadine. Just, just as the Lord impresses, pray. It becomes a, I think prayer without ceasing doesn't mean like you have to quit your job and just do it all the time. I think it means constantly you're in a spirit where the Lord impresses people and pray, impresses people and pray. I like the image of the fiddler on the roof as he walks down the road and just looks up into the clouds and just talks to the Lord. That's, that's good prayer. A fancy speech. Constantly in my prayers night and day as I remember your tears. Apparently, Timothy was an emotional young man. 
when were these tears? Maybe there were tears when he got saved. Maybe when people got saved under his ministry. Maybe it was tears that he shed when Paul had to take off and he left him. Tears reveal that you care. They really do. That you love. Some people aren't criers. I'm not a crier. I have cried. Last time I cried was at my mother's funeral. But I, I don't shed tears rapidly. Wish I did more. Uh, occasionally I've shed tears from laughter more recently than, than not. But it's a good thing. Notice, remember your tears. I long to see you. How honest is that? This is, this is axe sharpening, head cutting language. I long to see you. See? That's, that's language that isn't written with this. It's written with this. Uh, my, my, uh, one of my favorite places to go as a young man was Uncle Leland and Aunt Mabel's. It was a house over in Cooperstown on the side of a hill that overlooked the lake. And we'd spend hours there because spending hours at their house was like spending minutes. Um, now, when I went to my grandmother Gaylor's, spending minutes at Grandma Gaylor's was like spending hours. It wasn't a fun house. We were given Tinker Toys and Lincoln Logs, told to sit in this six-foot radius. That's where you played, and, and it was torment. But not at Uncle Leland's and Aunt Mabel's. It was a hoot. I could go on with stories up there, but I won't bore you with that. But I remember almost every time we would get at the door, and we would sit for 20 more minutes talking. And my mom would always say this. She said, isn't the best conversation at the door? It's the best. Because people realize, I'm not going to see him for another month or two. I'm, let me say some things that really need to be said. That's the statement there. I long to see you. Isn't that beautiful when somebody says that to you? I long to see you. My heart's with you. Okay. One more verse and we're done. Because I can tell you just want one more verse. As I remembered your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. When I, Paul says, when I come see you, man, it's just happiness inside of me. There's nothing better than that. There's no salary that can replace that. There's no... There's nothing that's better than people who love people and Paul who loved Timothy and somebody where you go. I don't know if you've ever gone somewhere you didn't feel welcome, you know, you didn't feel loved. You couldn't get out of there faster. But when you feel loved, you can't get away from that. It's, 